Good evening. Great to see everyone. Great to be in the house of the Lord. I love these midweek studies. Such a blessing to come and just a fellowship again during the middle of the week and uh, kind of shake off the dust of the world. In fact, coming down, it was nice listening to Christmas music coming down and then having Gary sing. And that last song we just sang, we're going to kind of flesh it out here in, the, in Psalm 89. So we'll get to look at a lot of that. So it's just a pleasure to be here. If y'all want to open up to Psalm 89, please. So this is a very long psalm. It's 52 verses. To cover it verse by verse, you'd you'd really have to break it down into probably about four sessions, 12, 13 verses each. So we uh, we won't be doing that. I'll read the whole thing. I do want everybody to hear the whole thing. But, uh, of course, we only have like 35 minutes or so, 40 minutes. Um, So... I'll read the whole thing, and, um, and then I'll give an overview, hit some highlights. But it does talk about the, the wonders of God, and I, I want to focus on that tonight. As Christians, we just get to think about some very neat things, just, just things that I think the world really misses. So we're going to hit some of that. We're going to cover some of the natural sciences a little bit. I even came across a, a little portion of Chuck Missler's research and something that, that kind of fit as well. So, um, so we'll hit some, some pretty neat things as we go. But it's such a large psalm, it takes like five or six minutes just to read it. And we also have a five-minute video, if we can get that to work as well. So, so uh, we'll try to, try to pack it all in there. But Psalm 89, a contemplation of Ethan the Ezraite. I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. With my mouth will I make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I have said, mercy shall be built up forever. Your faithfulness you shall establish in the very heavens. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David my servant. Your seed I will establish forever and build up your throne to all generations. Selah. And the heavens will praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness also in the assembly of the saints. For who in the heavens can be compared to the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty can be likened to the Lord? God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be held in reverence by all those around him. O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty like you, O Lord? Your faithfulness also surrounds you. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You have broken Rahab in pieces. As one who is slain, you have scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours, the earth also is yours, the world and all its fullness. You have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon, rejoice in your name. You have a mighty arm, strong as your hand, and high as your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Mercy and truth go before your face. Blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. They walk, O Lord, in the light of your countenance. In your name they rejoice all day long, and in your righteousness they are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength, and in your favor our our horn is exalted. For our shield belongs to the Lord, and our King to the Holy One of Israel. Then you spoke in a vision to your Holy One and said, I have given help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from from the people. I have found my servant David with my holy oil. I have anointed him with whom my hand shall be established, and also my arm shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him. I will beat down his foes before his face and plague those who hate him. But my faithfulness and my mercy shall be with him, and in my name his horn shall be exalted. Also I will set his hand over the sea and his right hand over the rivers. He shall cry to me, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. Also I will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My mercy I will keep for him forever. My covenant shall stand firm with him. His seed also I will make to to endure forever, and his throne as the days of heaven. If his sons forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments, if they break my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. Nevertheless, my loving kindness I will not utterly take from him, nor allow my faithfulness to to fall. My covenant I will not break, nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His seed shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, even like the faithful witness in the sky, Selah. But you have cast off and abhorred. You have been furious with your anointed. You have renounced the covenant of your servant. You have profaned his crown by casting it to the ground. 
You have broken down all his hedges. You have brought his strongholds to ruin. All who pass by the way plunder him. He is a reproach to his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his adversaries. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You have also turned back the edge of his sword and have not sustained him in battle. You have made his glory cease and cast his throne down to the ground. The days of his youth you have shortened. You have covered him with shame. Selah. How long, Lord, will you hide yourself forever? Will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what futility have you created all the children of men? For what man can live and not see death? Can he deliver his life from the power of the grave? Selah. Lord, where are your former loving kindnesses, which you swore to David in your truth? Remember, Lord, the reproach of your servants, how I bear in my bosom the reproach of all the many peoples with which your enemies have reproached, O Lord, with which they have reproached the footsteps of your anointed. Blessed be the Lord forevermore. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We praise you. Lord, we thank you for all the Psalms, Lord, even in what would appear to be a dark hour. Lord, we praise you and we trust you. We thank you. We thank you for the faith that you give us when there are things that we don't see or understand at the current time, Lord, but still you, you get us through those things. And we thank you for this, this psalm, Lord, and pray that it would just be a, a blessing to go through. And as we look at and just remember your creation and study that, Lord, and just how awesome and powerful you are, Lord, I pray that this would be a blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so that is quite a long psalm. It is the last of the psalms of book three. Uh, these are psalms of Asaph and Korah. Psalms 84 through 89 specifically are Levitical psalms. These were the singers and keepers of the temple doors. That's why Psalm 84 starts out with how lovely, lovely is your tabernacle. So that's what they were seeing. And, and so these were Levitical psalms. And these psalms describe the glory awaiting Israel at the Messiah's return, but they also are, are kind of dark, especially Psalms 88 and 89. Not a lot of joy in them or rejoicing, just a lot of darkness. But thankfully, we know that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Importantly, Psalm 89 was written around the time of the Babylonian captivity, and it also may have been in response to the curse placed on the line of the kings. And we'll uh, talk about that at the very end. So it's an interesting psalm. Uh, A quick overview and framework. Verses 1 through 4 starts with praising the Lord for his faithfulness and mercy toward David and the covenant proclaimed to him. Then verses 5 through 18 demonstrate God's power over the natural creation as well as his power over the nations. That's the reference about breaking Rahab in pieces. So the Lord has power over creation and his power over the nations. We see that as well. Verses 19 through 37 restates the covenant promise to David 38 through 48 questions the apparent failure of the covenant. So you can tell there's definitely a change in the tone where he's, he's praising the Lord initially and thanking him for all his power and majesty and everything, but then it's almost, almost accusing the Lord of, of breaking the covenant. So there's a, a definite change in tone. So that's verses 38 through 48. And then the last part, there's a plea for the Lord to return to and remember the covenant. And many times our natural tendency is to blame God for our circumstances. But people also forget how many times the Lord had tried to bring Israel back from idolatry as well as us, you know, trying to bring us back into line. And then then we blame God when he has to discipline us. So we, we don't want to do that. What was the covenant with David? Second Samuel 7 says, I will set up your king, your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. We know it was initially fulfilled in Solomon, but then Jesus, the ultimate fulfillment. Jeremiah had told him there would be a 70-year captivity. Isaiah seems to allude to this happening twice. Isaiah 11.11 says, It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time, to recover the remnant of his people who are left from Assyria, Egypt, and then he lists a whole, whole bunch of different places. And we see this having been fulfilled in the at first, the 70-year Babylonian captivity, followed by the 2,000-year diaspora of the, of the Jews, and then he did bring them back. So Ezekiel actually is even more interesting 
Ezekiel actually tells them that the kingship would be vacated. Ezekiel 21:25 says, Now to you, O profane, wicked prince of Israel, whose day has come, whose iniquity shall end, thus says the Lord God, Remove the diadem and take off the crown. Nothing shall remain the same. Exalt the humble and humble the exalted. Overthrown, overthrown, I will make it overthrown. It shall no longer be until he comes whose right it is, and I will give it to him. So a very messianic verse talking about the kingship would be taken from Israel until, until he comes whose right it is, which we know that's the, the Messiah. So the psalmist here no doubt is disheartened, but he refrains from a full-on complaint, and he turns it to praise at the very end of his psalm. Matthew Henry states on this, let our com- on this, very, this very psalm, let our complaints therefore be turned into thanksgiving. And that, that is what the psalmist does at the very end. I'm sure it was difficult, and I'm sure he's upset at everything that has happened to Israel, kind of at the very end of Israel's reign there. So that's kind of the overview. Certainly, Psalm 89 is something that you can read, and we'll hit a couple of other highlights. Verse 5 states, The heavens will praise your wonders, O Lord. And we have such busy lifestyles now, and we don't really get a chance to, to take the time to appreciate God's creation. I actually wanted to do that. I actually kind of started focusing on the wonders, and I kind of got stuck on the wonders. And, and um, there's so many amazing things that, that we can study in the Word of God. And it's important to remember there are two witnesses for us to use. There's creation and the Word of God. These two, these two witnesses both testify to the Lord, and some of what we talk about can help with apologetics as well, both evangelizing and defending God's word as well. I love the biological sciences, so we're actually going to get into a little bit of that. It shows the wonders of the creative power of the Lord, and it also helps combat the lies of the theory of evolution. So uh, some of the stuff is, is really fascinating. Uh, Our DNA is one thing that I wanted to highlight, just looking at the creative power of the Lord. It's the written code that is found in each cell, and everything is made from this. Here's what we know about DNA. There are six feet of DNA within each cell. So, as you know, it's tightly coiled. If you stretch it out, it makes six feet uh, in length. So that's a definite thing. What we're not sure about is we're not sure how many cells are in the average human body. The estimates are around 6 trillion, but possibly up to 100 trillion cells in the human body. All I know is that the estimates seem to be going up, so it used to be less, but as we know more and more, the estimates actually seem to be going up. A a pretty reasonable estimate, or a common estimate, seems to be around 30 to 40 trillion as far as an estimate. When you do the math, and remember, this is, this is all about glorifying the Lord. This is his power in creation. Some of these numbers are really amazing. When you do the math of six feet of DNA multiplied by 30, 30 trillion cells, you end up with 34 billion miles of DNA within the human body. So that's just one human body. That's not all humanity stretched out or anything. That's just one person with all of your DNA uncoiled, stretched out end to end. That is amazing. Even if the number were wrong by a tenth, say three billion miles, that is still astounding. That is so amazing. And remember, it's not 34 billion miles of nonsense. It's a written code. That's what that is. Pluto is about three million miles away, so your DNA can go to Pluto and back. It it varies because it does have an orbit. But your, your DNA can go to Pluto and back numerous times. That's how amazing it is. And this is just the little children's version of the DNA. So it actually gets worse than just having to have the correct sequence. When you think of DNA, you have to think of structure as well. What's the famous structure with DNA? It's a double helix. So that's kind of like the windy staircase thing. It, sorry about the special effects there. Hope that gets the point across, but you can look it up online. You can see that, but it's a double helix. Why is that so important? That's how it's packaged into the cell. So when it's made into a gene, it's tightly wound like that. It's not just stuffed in there all randomly. It fits very organized into the gene that it forms. 
And we'll touch on organic chemistry for just a second. It's very easy. I know it sounds like an intimidating class, but it's actually very easy here. DNA and amino acids, acids have what's called chirality. And all that means is that half of the molecules are left-handed and half of them are shaped like your, your right hand. So some of them are oriented like this, some are oriented like that. They're mirror images, but they are distinctly different. So that's the key difference. They, they can't be superimposed, just like you can't fit a left-handed glove on a right hand. So that's easy, and that's, as far as the organic chemistry, that's as difficult as it is. It's, it's pretty simple overall. Half of them, exactly half are like this, and exactly half are like that, but they're not the same. Chains of DNA are all in the right-handed forms, chains of amino acid are all left-handed. So that's the only thing you need to remember. The trouble for evolution is that it's always a 50-50 mix of these molecules. If you get one of the wrong-handed molecule in the chain, it destabilizes the entire chain and it won't work. But if you can picture having like the primordial soup and selectively having to pick out each like left-handed molecule or right-handed molecule, depending on what you're trying to make, it can't happen. It's, it's like flipping a coin. You would have to get heads every single time, or, you, you know, that's the analogy, is that you would have to get heads every single time. Any time that I've tried this, if I try flipping a quarter, I usually get about 50-50. I get about 50% heads, 50% tails. Maybe I'm doing it wrong, or maybe I'm just a bad coin flipper, but that's how it ends up being. So it's a double problem for evolution. You need the correct sequence. Remember, it's a language, it's a code, it's a, a written sentence, but very long and, and involved. But you also need the correct structural form. So chirality is acknowledged. Just so you all know, chirality has made evolution categorically impossible. It's actually worse than impossible. I, I won't spend a lot of time on this. But the DNA and the amino acids, they don't just link themselves up automatically. For, I'm not sure about DNA, I didn't get a chance to look it up, how many chemical steps are necessary to link one DNA base pair to another one, but there are chemical steps involved. But for amino acids, it's actually 90 chemical steps to link one amino acid to the next amino acid. So 90 chemical steps to link, to link these together. So to flesh this out, just to finish the illustration and how impossible evolution is, Let's practice making one famous protein, hemoglobin. So hemoglobin requires about 500 amino acids. Technically, I think it's 537 amino acids, but there are 20 available. So you have a 1 in 20 chance to get the correct amino acid to get the correct sequence, to get all these, to get the, the letters lined up, so to speak, in, your, in the amino acid, in the uh, protein. You have a 1 in 20 chance of getting the amino acid correct. And that right there is impossible, by the way. It can't be done. To do it, to have a 1 in 20 chance 500 times in a row, it's beyond the threshold of possibility of what statisticians call possible. So just remembering it's a, it's a code and it has a sequence. But then it has to be a left-handed amino acid. So just one right-handed amino acid and it's done and you would have to start all over. Then it's 90 chemical steps. So again, you have to have the right one for the sequence, then it has to be a left-handed one, then it's 90 chemical steps to link it to the next one. And you would have to do that 500 times in a row. And that's just to make one hemoglobin protein. And bear in mind, each red blood cell carries multiple hemoglobin protein, and your body makes two million, so remember, the hemoglobin attaches to the red blood cell, but your body makes two million red blood cells per second. So that's the order and the magnitude of God's creation. Two million red blood cells per second. We just saw how difficult it was to make one hemoglobin protein, and there are multiple hemoglobin proteins attached to a red blood cell, and yet your body, since I've been talking, my body has made millions and millions of red blood cells just per second, two million per second. So talk about being fearfully and wonderfully made. And to think I used to think organic chemistry was extremely boring, but now it's actually kind of exciting. So last point on this, just to, just to really illustrate and make things difficult for the evolutionist as well. 
So just suppose you wanted to theoretically try to do it, and we were going to show mercy on the evolutionists to try to help them out a little bit. Suppose you poured 100% left-handed amino acids and you wanted to try to make something like the hemoglobin. So guess what happens over time if you just pour left-handed amino acids into your primordial mix or whatever? Guess what happens over time? It somehow spontaneously reverts back to a 50-50 mix of equilibrium of 50% left-handed, 50% right-handed. I have no idea how it does that. I've read that according to chemists, and so somehow it's, it's like the Lord is just blocking that whole thing from happening. So it, it's humorous, and it's tragically, there's a tragic irony for the evolutionists because time actually works against the evolutionist here. T evolutionists always rely on millions of years. That's their fallback position. Whenever they get to something too complicated for them, they go back to millions of years. That's their, uh, that's their default position. Well, over enough time, you know, anything could happen, but it really can't because even if you were to start out with 100% pure amino acids left-handed, it's going to convert back to uh, uh, equilibrium, an equal mix of that. So chirality is the exclamation point on the catastrophic failure of evolution. If all this fails, and you don't remember any of this, and I don't blame you because it is, it is chemistry and organic chemistry, and I don't, know, I don't know a whole lot more about it either. I'm certainly not an expert, but I've, I've read enough for this. But if all else fails, do you mind showing the slide, please? So if all else fails, just put this on your social media page if you can, please. This is from Roche. This is just a, a little schematic of what's going inside the cell. And so if you would really expect me to believe that that would assemble itself, it just can't happen. I'm, I'm not going to believe that. And so, and that's, that's even apart from all of this. So if you want something, you know, picture is worth a thousand words. If you want something to show people, then by all means, um, you can show them that. If you want me to email that to you, I certainly could as well. So, and by the way, this portion is just an excerpt. It's been suggested, um, I think we're like Randy West. We've talked about putting together a video series on some of these topics. This is just an excerpt. I have a whole teaching on this. And if we ever did like a video thing or something like that, it, I would be open to it. This is kind of an excerpt of going through why evolution can't work, because there are scientific reasons. The science is on our, our side. We serve just a, a powerful God, and it, it's great seeing this, but the science is on our side, and it's not that hard to explain and, and show people what's really happening, and at least getting them to you know, really think about what do you really believe? Like, what are you saying with millions of years? What, what's behind all of that? Have you really looked into it that much? So, um, so anyway, this is just part of that. If we ever get to that point where we can do some videos, you know, this would be something we could talk about. So anyway, it is good to be a Christian foot doctor. I really love what I do. I love seeing the, the application of science in action. I was thinking if I could make this practical and beneficial to the church, there's one thing that's worth mentioning that kind of came to mind, and then we'll, we'll get out of this topic. But there is a, a new subspecialty of genetics called epigenetics. And what researchers are finding now, this is really fairly recent, I would say, like over the past 15, 20 years, but researchers are finding out that our genetic makeup is not actually written in stone. So we, so researchers, not me, but geneticists used to think it was, it was more written in stone, but it turns out that's not the case. And so I really want to benefit the church as much as we can, especially like our children, our children's children, thinking, thinking of the church, especially like going into the end times. Um, the, the point is that what has been found is that the genetic makeup of the offspring can be affected by the, the parent's nutritional status. So you can't really change your own gen genetic makeup, but you can of your children if you're still of childbearing age or your children and them. So particularly the lack of nutrition can adversely affect the genetic makeup of your children leading up to childbearing years. So. Um, and you, when you think about the modern American diet, you know, we're just overeating nutritionally deficient food. Pastor Tim has stated how many times, he's stated many times how it seems Americans are just getting sicker and sicker. And I've been in practice now almost 20 years, and I can testify Americans are getting sicker and sicker. Even today I saw it. 
And even it's commonplace for children now to be on prescription medications, things that really didn't happen that much back 20, 25 years. So I think a lot of it does have to do with nutrition. So, you know, as far as like shopping organic, growing your own food, whatever you can do, anything to kind of help. But that's an interesting thing. I hope to make some of this practical for you, especially like we've got children who are ages 23 down to seven, you know, child, getting into childbearing ages, things like that, thinking long term. And I'm really trying to, to push that with the family. And we don't always do a great job with that, especially like the teenage boys really don't do a great job with that. They like their fast food. But at the same time, trying to really encourage them to do that. So as I said, it's good to be a Christian doctor, but it is great to be a creationist doctor, believing in a literal six-day creation plus a day of rest, and a, believing in a 6,000-year human history followed by a 1,000 years of messianic reign. By the way, the, the epigenetics, that study, fits better with a creationist model, you know, looking at how long they're saying humans are evolving. If, you know, we ha if we've been around 150, 200,000 years kind of evolving into our current um, species, then that's a long time to accumulate the genetic mistakes. The, this all fits better with a creationist model. An argument evolutionists often use against the Bible uh, is the longevity of the patriarchs. Adam, Methuselah, Noah, all of them living hundreds of years. In 2015, I took the family down to tr Florida where I went to a wound care seminar for a whole week and it was based on wound care. And the, the thrust of that seminar was hy hyperbaric oxygen chambers being used and developed for wound care. So uh, hyperbaric oxygen chambers were initially used for treating Navy divers in the bends where they, you know, they're really at a deep uh, level below the ocean and then they would get the bends. So they put them in these oxygen tanks, hyper, it's pressurized oxygen tanks. And so, um, so I went down there for that and it was, a neat class in terms of the wound care. So we use it for, and I have used it for treating open wounds and bone infections, things like that. And especially like post-cancer treatment where someone had radiation for cancer, but then it just creates all this scar tissue that is avascular. It doesn't have much blood flow and it's just not healthy tissue. It's just this really tough um, sinewy type tissue. But with the hyperbaric oxygen, you try to encourage blood flow to enter into that. And I, I still remember being in the class and we learned the mechanism of how this worked. And what you do, you put someone in the tank and then they're breathing pure oxygen, but it's under pressure. And it forces the oxygen from the hemoglobin into the plasma as well. And as soon as I heard that, I was like, wow, that is fascinating. That, that fits the biblical, you know, the, the creationist model if you remember, the Bible records the shortening of our life, of human lifespan after the flood. Something seems to happen after the flood where the lifespans really start to go down. And a number of creationists have, have noted or suggested that there appears to have been some atmospheric changes. So if you imagine pre-flood times, almost, maybe not exactly, maybe this isn't the best example, but almost as if the earth is in a hyperbaric oxygen scenario, something like that. I don't think it's that unreasonable for people to have lived much longer, especially if there's a less, there's less accumulation of genetic errors. Also, if their food is more pure, less contaminants in the food, less contaminants in the drinking water, the environment being more pure, a combination of all of these things under, and under hyperbaric conditions. Literally, if, if your plasma can carry that life-giving oxygen to the tissues as well as your hemoglobin, then it's not hard to imagine people living longer. And I'm, I'm not saying that's the case, certainly. Just kind of putting these things together and kind of bringing, um, you know, it's just not that hard to picture people living 800 years, 900 years. If the Lord can create 30 billion miles of DNA and it, and it all works together, there's really nothing hard for him to do. Hard to imagine does not mean hard to accept. We just accept these things on faith that before the flood, things were different. That's okay. We don't know what that was like. We just accept that and, uh, and move on. The Chuck Missler article that I came across actually fascinated me as well. There's the hydrologic cycle. Pastor Tim has mentioned it some, and, and, um, and I've always 
been kind of fascinated, but I've actually never really studied it. I remember being as a child, like, how does water actually filter down through dirt and end up clean on the other side, and then your well taps into that, or you get drinking water or whatever out of it? That's always been a mystery to me. It still actually is, because I've never actually looked at it. And how does water get pulled up like through a mountain and then flow down as extremely pure spring water? It's just, it's just really neat to see how the Lord did all of that. Even in ancient times, people marveled about this. Ecclesiastes 1.7 says, All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. Unto the place from whence the rivers come, there they return again. So, and when I was doing just a little bit of research on this, uh, the, the one article that I read said that the kind of the movement of water around the earth is one of those things that's most common found in the Bible. It's, it's kind of, a, it always kind of illustrates, it's not, you know, just talking about the science, but it's like Ecclesiastes 170 is making a point with it, but then it turns out they're, they're scientifically accurate as well. Everything the Bible talks about is scientifically ac accurate, even if it's just making a, a spiritual point. And we know skeptics also doubt the flood as well. And I really didn't plan on this, but when I was organizing my desk, I actually found the article by Chuck Missler and I realized I had printed it and I never actually read it. And like I said, I was kind of going from wonder to wonder to wonder when I wanted to do Psalm 89. So I wasn't planning on this, but I found it so interesting. I figured I'd mention it, but he talks about a mineral called ringwoodite, ringwoodite. And it's named after Dr. Ringwood, who was an Australian, ge Australian geologist who found it. And it's, it was only discovered in 1969. It was a late discovery because it's so deep within the surface that it loses its structure when it's brought to the surface. So that's why geologists haven't known about it for such a long time. And so Dr. Ringwood found a diamond with a tiny fleck of ringwoodite preserved in it. And that's simply because of the pressure is so great that the, the ringwoodite was actually preserved within the diamond. But what's interesting about it is the ringwoodite has water stored in it as a hydroxide plus hydrogen. So water is actually locked in the, in the ringwoodite and then that was locked in the diamond. But ringwoodite contains only about 1% of its water as weight. So uh, only a small portion of the ringwoodite actually contain the water. But now, 50 odd years later, now scientists realize that there may be as much as three to four times worth of all the world's oceans combined stored in ringwoodite below the surface of the earth. So down there, there's all this ringwoodite. And even though only 1% of it is really water per se, all this pure water is being stored in a form like that, but under the earth's surface. And I was out splitting wood on a Saturday, and I'm so glad I get to do manual labor on Saturdays because it gives me a chance to think. And I was like, why would all that water be stored underneath the surface of the earth? Is that something past? Is that water from the flood? Is that where it went? And it just kind of got, you know, kind of compressed and stored down there? Or is it, more interestingly, is it stored as pure water for something future? And what I, from what I remember in Revelation, when the Lord cleanses the earth, the water systems don't do extremely well. The, the earth, you know, really takes a beating. The water systems all get destroyed as well. Uh, I just happened to look up today's Bible verse of the day, and it had 2 Peter 3.10 and 11. It says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. The earth and everything in it will be laid bare. And then he goes on to say, so how should you be living your lives, you know, knowing that the Lord, the day of the Lord is going to come as a thief and all these things are going to happen. We should be living holy lives, of course. But when you think about what's going to happen in Revelation is all of this water being stored for something future. And back before the, the flood, remember, there was no rain on the earth. We know that there was a mist that came up and watered the earth, but there was actually no rain. This is another thing that we just have to take on faith. But Genesis 2.10 says, Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four riverheads. So it had me wondering about the millennial reign, what that's going to be like is, you know, when we go back to Eden-like conditions, people are living to a thousand years again, what's that really going to be like? Is this, all this water that's under the earth's surface, is that going to be 
um, is that going to be feeding the river of God coming up, all this pure water? I don't know. I'm just, just kind of thinking I certainly would recommend you do your own research and everything. I'm definitely not a geologist or an expert in any of this, but pretty interesting stuff to think about, and I really appreciate Chuck Missler as well. Um, so back to Psalm 89, toward the end of the psalm, the psalmist, he kind of paints a, a bleaker picture. So again, we know that he's upset by everything that's happened. And you notice there is that change in tone. And there's even kind of an inversion of some of the previous verses. So instead of Rahab being destroyed at the end of the psalm, it's the crown of Israel being thrown down. And instead of the creation of the world, we see the destruction of the Judean kingdom. And instead of the right hand of God delivering, we see the destructive right hand of the enemies being exalted in verse 42. So he, he actually starts to reverse. And when you kind of go through it carefully, when you have more time to read it, he, he kind of takes the opposite and he does an inversion of some of those earlier verses where he's, he's really thanking the Lord and praising him. But then at the end, he's distraught, almost complaining about the Lord breaking his covenant to David. And so, you know, in thinking about this, uh, our country should take a warning from this as well. He may choose to defend us if we honor him. If not, like the psalmist is, is, you know, kind of relating to us, he may be counted as our enemy. And um, so that's, that's a warning for our country. And um, there's a... I had recently read a book, and I'll just I'll include this kind of quickly. I wasn't sure if I would have time for this or not, but um, I, I read a book on the Battle of New Orleans, and it was very interesting. You know, a 200-year-ago battle was it was the, ba- the War of 1812, and it was a great story. It was by uh, Brian Kilmeade, and actually that was that was the reason I wanted to do this psalm. It's by Brian Kilmeade. I like the way he does his books. They're just kind of to the point. There's not tons of historical minutia. And, uh, you know, we see that in that, in the War of 1812, I really didn't know that much about it, but you see Andrew Jackson leading the Americans against the British at the Battle of New Orleans. He, Andrew Jackson, to him it was personal because he was orphaned by the British earlier, so he really, it was personal with him. And he actually gained military experience fighting American Indians who were attacking settlers at the, at the provocation of the British. And Andrew Jackson even commanded like Davy Crockett and Sam Houston. There's really great history in there. The British were coming to take control of New Orleans because that was the center of the country and all the commerce was coming down the Mississippi River. And so it it turned out to be just a a neat example of the Lord actually fighting for us, I would say, back when we were maybe a little more godly. Uh, You all have probably heard the story how the British had actually burned the Capitol building And then a freak thunderstorm came and drove the British off, or at least discouraged them, and it actually put out the fire at the Capitol building. So I'd heard all these stories kind of younger, but I I was actually kind of weak on the history with this. And I was like, wow, that really is the Lord just kind of defending us, and that's that's neat to see. But uh, we'll watch the video here in a minute, and we'll see if we're in the same same, uh, situation there. But, um, you know, this, this army that was gathering was the greatest army in the world at the time. It had recently defeated Napoleon, and it was coming to, to America. And I'll, I'll just finish with this point because I don't want to spoil it, but I do recommend it. It's uh, Brian Kilmeade's book on the, the miracle of New Orleans. But I'll, I'll finish with this point. Andrew Jackson had just a few weeks to try to gather the people together and, and rally them together in New Orleans. And he actually had a parade there were freed slaves. He was, he was trying to bring this rabble of American people together. There were freed slaves, Creoles, Choctaw Indians, Tennessee volunteers, and Kentucky militiamen. And interestingly, he actually had pirates of the Caribbean coming to his aid. The British had solicited the pirates to help them navigate and actually kind of threatened them. And we all know pirates don't have allegiances. They don't have any loyalty but they actually decide to defend the Americans. So they're there in the parade. So uh, I thought, wow, what an interesting picture. The, actually, the most devastating group there were the New Orleans aristocrats. They, were, they decided not to sit back. They actually 
formed a, a group of riflemen who became known as Beale's sharpshooters, so, so they made a difference as well. I was thinking, too, what a picture of heaven, like when you know, Jude talks about Enoch prophesying when the Lord returns with ten thousands of his saints and thousands upon thousands of his saints. You know, we're all going to come from different backgrounds, and um, this is just such a hodgepodge. It was like eight to 10,000 British regulars versus about 1,500 Americans. And then, I'll, and then one extremely determined General Jackson. It's a good study. Uh, if nothing else, it's a great study of determination and tenacity. That's, that's one reason I want to mention it. I don't necessarily see that in the church nowadays, but I think we're going to need it as we get it into the end times. And myself included, I don't always see that in myself. And I know that you know, we need to, to buckle down as the church and you know, not be... Con- you know, continually looking for entertainment and so many things that, that attract us and draw us away. Um, although I will say this, I was determined to clear land, and on Saturday I did 13 hours of chainsawing and wood splitting just this past Saturday, so I was pretty proud of that. No breaks. Uh, the only break was Jackie brought a plate of Thanksgiving food out to me, and then she jumped in there and she was splitting wood, being the good helpmeet that she is. So the Bible says a man should bear his work in his youth, and um, I'm turning 54 on Friday, so I wanted to do that while I was still young-ish. <laughs> so, so anyway, when, uh, when I was looking at the Psalms to do, Pastor Tim gave me some options, and, and I actually had this Andrew Jackson story in my mind. That's why I chose Psalm 89, because I wanted to actually do that. And I was like, wow, what a difference where our country was a couple hundred years ago, just in our infancy. But, you know, definitely not a perfect, perfect country, but, um, you know, I would say more godly than now, perhaps. And so I'll show you a five-minute video. hope you can enjoy it. I thought it was very interesting. And it, um, you know, sometimes I think we have the thought, like, uh, surely we're Americans. We can't be defeated. But uh, what this video is, is it's a video comparing recruitment ads of China and then Russia and then the USA and then, you, then I'll come back up and we'll finish with the psalm. There's a little bit more about the, the curse of the kings here. We'll finish with that. But if you want to take five minutes to enjoy the video, please. Вчера не имеет значения. То, кем ты был прежде, уже никого не волнует. Теперь важно то, кем ты будешь сегодня. Что ты знаешь о себе? 
На что ты способен? Вопросы могут остаться без ответов, но разве ты сможешь потом спокойно спать? Узнать себя, познать границы своих возможностей. К черту границы. Ты готов ломать себя до изнеможения. Каждый день здесь боль закаляет. Шрамы, повседневность. Это ты решил себе что-то доказать. Командир здесь только для того, чтобы ты мог увидеть в нем врага. Потому что без врага нет боя, а без боя нет победы. Но на самом деле, главный враг это ты. Вчерашний ты. Твоя задача выследить врага, догнать его, превзойти, стать лучше, чем он, и вернуться назад победителем. Потому что завтра первый день твоей новой жизни. story of a soldier who operates your nation's Patriot Missile Defense Systems. It begins in California with a little girl raised by two moms. Although I had a fairly typical childhood, took ballet, played violin, I also marched for equality. I like to think I've been defending freedom from an early age. When I was six years old, one of my moms had an accident that left her paralyzed. Doctors said she might never walk again, but she tapped into my family's pride to get back on her feet, eventually standing at the altar to marry my other mom. With such powerful role models, I finished high school at the top of my class and then attended UC Davis, where I joined a sorority full of other strong women. But as graduation approached, I began feeling like I'd been handed so much in life, a sorority girl stereotype. Sure, I'd spent my life around inspiring women, but what had I really achieved on my own? One of my sorority sisters was studying abroad in Italy. Another was climbing Mount Everest. I needed my own adventures, my own challenge. And after meeting with an army recruiter, I found it. A way to prove my inner strength and maybe shatter some stereotypes along the way. I'm US Army Corporal Emma Malone Lord, and I answered my calling. <laughs> We're doomed. Is that it? <laughs> so when I saw that, I was like, oh boy. Well, so I won't even really comment on that. Thankfully, I don't know that our entire country is behind all of that just yet. I hope not. You know, I'm glad to see that there is still some fight and some resistance against that kind of thing. But a lot of that is getting pushed now. I know Jason's kind of looking at me like, <laughs> what was that? Any veterans in here are like, oh my gosh, can't believe this is happening. <laughs> I couldn't believe it either. All right, so at the very end of the psalm, just in the last couple minutes here, again, we see this, that the psalmist appears to, to kind of flirt with complaining against the Lord that he's broken his, his promises. And instead of taking ownership of his, his and his country's sin, um, you know, it, it doesn't really do that here, but plenty of other psalms do, you know, where Daniel does it, where a lot of people do take ownership and acknowledge their sin. But here, um, you know, it, it, he does praise the Lord at the very end, but it, it almost makes it sound like the Lord has broken his promises. But we know that he has, and, and the Lord is going to work all things together for the good that, lo that love him. And it's thought or suggested that this psalm is in response to the, the curse that was placed on the line of the kings of Judah by the Lord. So uh, just to take you back to the Babylonian captivity during that time, it was at the very end, Babylon was coming and the end was nigh. In 2 Kings 24, 8, and 8 through 9, Jehoiakim was 18 years old when he began to reign and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. So we're looking at the last of the kings of Judah. In Jeremiah 22, verse 30, it says, Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who will not, shall not prosper in his days, 
This is speaking of Jehoiakim. For none of his descendants shall prosper, sitting on David's throne. So this is the end of the line for the kings of Judah. And I don't think it was just Jehoiakim being punished for this. I think it goes back, all the way back to like Manasseh, who initiated the, you know, had shed so much innocent blood in Jerusalem. But this seems to be the end of the line for the kings. And this seems to, that seems to be what the writer of Psalm 89 is lamenting, the Babylonian captivity, but also the end of the line of the kings of Judah. Uh, possibly, you know, I don't know if he had heard about what Jeremiah had said about him, but, it's, but Jeremiah said specifically, none of his descendants shall prosper sitting on David's throne. And this is a, a famous curse and a famous passage. I'm sure many of you have heard this. But if you can imagine, this is almost like if Balaam's curse had worked. When Balaam was called to curse the people, you know, he couldn't do it, thankfully. But if he had been called to curse the people, uh, it would have been one of those types of things. Or when Jesus died on the cross and wasn't resurrected, Satan probably thought he had a victory here. And I actually heard Chuck Missler teaching on this a little bit as well. And this, this is, you know, kind of a Satan's move. But the Lord always turns things around. And so even though the psalm, the psalm kind of finishes where it's kind of depressing almost. Um, we know that the Lord did not break his promise to David, and we know that the Lord would have a counter move in place. And this would actually make the way for the virgin birth. So the line of the kings is cursed, but Jesus would still be the legal heir to Joseph, but he would still be a son of David according to, to uh, or under Mary. So the line wouldn't be broken, so it actually made way for the virgin birth. So the Lord actually turned it around where Jesus would still fulfill the requirements. The curse is in place. The curse is in effect. That After Jehoiakim, he, Jehoiakim did have children, but as it said, none of them would sit on the throne. So the kingship would be removed, but Jesus would still be descended from him, but he would also be descended through Mary, and so he would still be a son of David, satisfying that, but then the virgin birth would allow him to, uh, he's still the legal heir of Joseph as recorded in Matthew. So uh, amazing how the Lord could work that out, that the curse would still stand, but the Lord did not break his promise and Jesus would still be heir to the throne. So amazing how that works. And just the very last point, if you can think all the way back to the Garden of Eden, uh, Chuck Missler made the point um, about this that I thought was really interesting. He said that the, the angel with the flaming sword guarded the way to the tree of life. Interesting that the tree of life is available to everyone. It's the way that's actually guarded. And when I heard that, I actually went back and I was like, wow, he's right. It's the way to the tree of life that's guarded. But everyone can have, you know, everyone has access to the tree of life while they're alive but it's the way that's guarded. It's the one way that, that the Lord always protects. It's the one way to get to the tree of life and eternal life. And with that, let's go before the Lord, please. Father, we thank you and praise you. Thank you for this evening, Lord, and thank you for your many wonders. In that song that we sing, Lord, you are a miracle-working God. Even our very creation, Lord, we take for granted sometimes and just our body's ability to heal and and just, uh, just everything, Lord. We take it all for granted, but we thank you and praise you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that you have made for us, Lord. And even in the darkest times, Lord, you always make a way for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, and uh, one quick announcement. Pastor Trevor asked me to say if uh, anyone, uh, any of the men, if you could stay behind just to set up the tables, please. Thank you.